0: ifm 101.9 megahertz of life the institute of racial relations is currently really having a fairly deep dive into an issue that is core to what the institute is its principles its being in the name and that is looking at aspects of race and racism in the society but perhaps from from a perspective you might not have anticipated so to discuss this with me is my colleague who's been on before but as being the um, head of campaigns uh, and running campaigns on these issues he does tend to be called upon to talk about issues such as race racism black economic empowerment gabriel krauser welcome to HiFM again
1: hi sarah thank
0: you so much it's good to be here cool morning i wanted to ask you before we got into the specifics that you were looking at is Issues of race tend to, to blare across the media when an alleged act or an act of racism actually occurs. And I've heard commentators say that race is v- the biggest problem in South Africa. It is the, iris- the absolute unresolved. We don't say so. What do we say?
1: Yeah, we say racism is a problem for sure. Of course, it, it, it's, it hasn't gone extinct and uh, it never will. Like so many uh, sins, I suppose, uh, sort of moral uh, deviations from from good social norms, there will always be some racist actors out, out there. And the thing to do is, is manage and control that. Uh, in some sense, if there's a loony who's shouting in his own house, or in his own garden, you sort of let it be. If someone starts hurting someone else, you you, you intervene. But it's not the problem. The problem in South Africa, if you just want to choose one, is uh, unemployment. That's my opinion. It's also the opinion of most South Africans, and not just yesterday. Uh, the Institute has been commissioning demographically representative polls across creed, color, class, uh, geographically di- dispersed uh, uh, for for at least a decade, and every single time uh, we, we pay for one of these polls. People get asked... Sometimes with an open list, sometimes with a closed list. Sometimes it's in-person interviews. Sometimes it's over the phone. We've tried every different methodology. It always comes out the same. The biggest problem in the country is unemployment. Short after that comes crime, uh, drug abuse, domestic abuse, violence, um, corruption, and and the connection we find to race. If anything, you, usually there's about three percent of people who say that racism is one of the biggest problems in the country, which is a which is a, a, a fact that always surprises. Media pundits, when I when I say it on radio or TV, even more surprising is the fact that 80% of Black South Africans say they haven't experienced any racism in the last five years. They haven't personally experienced any racism in the last five years, which is a higher number. Obviously, that means there are some who are experiencing racism. But in terms of that 80% saying no, none at all, you never hear that on radio or TV. You hardly ever read it in the newspaper. Someone saying I'm actually not experiencing. Uh, racism day to day instead you hear a small minority who don't just say there was this racist incident that I suffered they say racism is every day my lived experience racism is when I eat cornflakes and when I go to the movies uh, when I turn on the tv when I when I drive down the street it's just racism everywhere so I think in a way I think of one of my jobs is to just try and give a sense of context you know there's one bad idea is that there's no racism at all Mm. another bad idea is that there's racism everywhere Mm. so nowhere racism and everywhere racism are both really bad ideas the everywhere racism idea is sort of quite dominant in the media space but in but in reality on the ground uh, where most people live the that's that's the previous war you know that's world war one we're in world war three here Mm. and and this war is a war against an administration that is letting people down, that's mm. that's got uh, presiding over more unemployment than we've ever had before, that's provide, presided over increases in poverty, that's presided while at the same time, by the way, not counting, not doing any uh, poverty survey from status A since Ramaphosa came into power. Before that, under Zuma, under Mbeki, it used to be every two to four years mm. uh, you'd get a poverty survey. Hasn't been one under Ramaphosa. Um, so we're, we're turning a blind eye to increases in poverty, to decreases in in school performance, decreases in skills, unprecedented basically around the world, the highest unemployment around the world. These are very, very real challenges, not even to mention the fact that we're running out of electricity, Mm. that we're running out of money, that uh, things get more expensive but there's less coming in to make ends meet, Uh, that 4 million South African children are growing up in households that... um, you know, on two-parent households that are giving them a best chance, that 1.7 million of them are suffering malnutrition, that 5% of grade 1s matriculate 12 years later with a decent pass in mathematics. You can go through the statistics. It's very awful. Mm. Very, very tough situation on the ground. And, uh, you know, battling apartheid, is it's, it's like kickboxing a ghost. It's, mm. it's, a, it's not brave, actually. So we're trying to do, I think, the brave work of, of, of finding the real issues where they are today Mm. Uh, that are impacting millions of people, and uh, yeah, trying to spread the ideas that we think really can turn it around.
0: I think what you just said sort of echoes my comments about the young, the teenagers that have been arrested for the tavern murders in uh, in Alex. I mean, those are kids whose employment prospects are probably virtually null, and and that's how they, let's say, get employed. So, yeah. how in the in. Take us through a couple of the campaigns that that uh, are so important in this regard, and and why why tackling them is important to the, all the social ills that you that you've mentioned.
1: Okay, so there are a couple of campaigns that are about race law. Uh, we are trying to roll back the race law in South Africa. From the institute's perspective, that has been that's a ninety-year-long mission, going on hundred years soon. One of the reasons this matters is because I think that that uh, that race gets in the way of the better angels in our nature, um, in particular race law. So when we have conversations about what we really need to do and we try and, you know, uh, government officials, Ramaphosa promises we're going to have a new group that's going to have a new task team, that's going to have a new plan to make everything better. Usually the right noises are made for a while and then something goes wrong and things don't get better. In fact, they get worse. And and in my analysis, often, not always, but often the the point at which things start to unravel, the point at which there's a departure from solutions-oriented practical thinking and a a decline into ideological uh, just madness, uh, for for want of a more polite term, recklessness or foolishness, that often is when when race law starts coming into the equation. So our biggest campaign, our most important campaign, which we have been going at uh, this whole year, is about the Employment Equity Amendment Bill. Now, this bill is... uh, you know, it's gone through Parliament, it's been signed in the National Assembly, it's been signed by the Council of Provinces, it's sitting on Ramaphosa's desk. All he has to do is sign it and then it becomes law. And Minister uh, Tulalis and the Department of Employment and Labour, as well as Administrative Affairs, you know, Ramaphosa's favourite, if, mm. if you go by the fact that he's the only guy with two positions. Uh, he's also deputy chair of the Communist Party, I think. Tulalis and he has said, that this thing is going to be signed in August or September. More likely August. So this really is getting to crunch time. We took 23,000 signatures to Ramaphosa saying you mustn't enforce the Employment Equity Amendment Bill. What will this bill do? It's be on steroids. Mm. It says that, firstly, the minister, Nkesi, will have the ability to directly set quotas in all businesses with 50 or more staff which is where 85% of the formal workforce is. And when I say set quotas, I mean precisely sub-sector, sub-region. And he can apply the Barnard principle in setting those quotas. The Barnard principle is a public sector principle, which says it can be better to leave a post vacant than to hire someone of the wrong color. And I'm saying wrong and in inverted commerce. And and the and the concord has said that principle applies to white people, black people, Indian people, coloured people. So theoretically, if you were to apply the Barnard principle in, you know, top senior management at municipal and uh, local and provincial government levels, black men would have to be prevented from being hired because they are currently overrepresented. Uh, now we firmly stand against that. Uh, that's just you know, it's just a, a new kind of idea of apartheid to block someone because they're black or white from getting a job. It, purely on that reason, unfortunately, is how the public sector officially works. But what this would do is it would take that same principle and make it ap- applicable to the private sector uh, to 85% of it directly. Then indirectly, it affects the rest by reigniting uh, the pre-disqualification criteria for doing business with government. In other words, there's been this law since 2017 that you can't even enter a bid for a for a government contract for certain contracts if you don't have the right number of b points and that was struck down by the concord and as unconstitutional and this is trying to bring it back so we think we're on pretty strong grounds when we say this law is unconstitutional Mm. but what can happen is it gets implemented for another eight years while the court battle goes on what is it doing it's chasing away money Mm. and that's chasing away jobs and we already have you know, this is, this is. we already have the highest unemployment rate in the, in the world, mm. in the world, on record. We cannot afford to have a, a, a new bit of red tape, the reddest tape of all, literally strangling jobs, strangling jobs. As people are, are, you know, young people are about to hit the workforce, there's even less capital to mix with their labor, mm. because you've got this, this mad social engineering project afoot. So... Mm. We've got twenty five thousand signatures now against that. We're still trying to gather those signatures because we want to go and show them to a court. If mm. Ramaphosa, we want to pressure Ramaphosa not to sign this. Mm. And if he does, we want to we want to show a court that this is unconstitutional mm. and that and that South Africans get it. And we've you know we're very pleased we've got mm. such a wide variety of people who sign mm. on, take this act of citizenship. But the, the, we've got the other campaign as well.
0: Okay, <laughs> just before we come to that, <laughs> you can campaign on this till till doomsday. What? You know, no one in this country can be in any doubt that if you want to create investment, local or foreign, and the foreign companies have made it very clear, BEE is a disaster for 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 most for many foreign com- companies. It is the disaster. It is the off putter of of note when it comes to investing in South Africa. One gets impression, therefore, that two last names and. And his colleagues, are either they, they don't give a damn or they deluded or we're living in Alice in Wonderland. Um, It, it just is beyond comprehension in, in the circumstances that we're in. Um, Is there um, an explanation for this that we could perhaps understand? Or is it purely sort of some ideological power grabbing, nasty? I, uh, God knows any. I'll leave well, it up to you to suggest
1: let, let me let me try. Something that came to mind recently is that I watched the Black Business Council, the BBC, has mm-hmm. uh, got a new head uh, who was giving a lecture to Cyril Ramaphosa and others in history. It's a very surprising lecture, Sarah, because his analysis was that apartheid was actually very good in many respects that need to be repeated. He said that apartheid created Afrikaner tycoons and the way that it did so was that uh, it created uh, government contract contracts, tenders, that it would extend for 25 years to go to the same uh, white Afrikaner. And uh, because the government kept paying this guy, he made so much money that in the end he could build himself a personal empire. Mm. And he said, if this government can't do the same thing, we have a big problem. We must be able to do the same thing. And it was astonishing. I mean, I've been on SAFM and, uh, you know, Sikhan Gubese, our former colleague, he had exactly the same experience with me doing the midnight shows, debating guys, arguing for expropriation without compensation at the time. And we would say, but this is like apartheid. And they'd say, yes, that's why we like it. <laughs> uh, the apartheid was the right idea. It was just the wrong color, Getting the getting the goodie bag. So, I mean, this guy was arguing. The head of the Black Business Council was openly arguing. It's on YouTube. Please go check it out. Openly arguing that this government must continue to create black tycoons through massive uh, government contract, you know, basically by redistributing money from the poor to a few rich guys, mm. because that's how they can build personal empires. And it's through that, uh, if you have a few black billionaires, a few more black billionaires, then somehow the poor will be able to vicariously live through them. You know, I think the an old-fashioned populist idea is for the is for some rich people that are that are not rich because they've got good business ideas that have really added value. You know, I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about some people that have basically stolen the money mm. to tell the people that they've robbed that it's okay because we look the same. Mm. So in a way mm. what's mine is yours and what's yours is mine, symbolically. Mm. But it you know, I'm gonna eat what I eat and you're gonna beg for crumbs. Yeah. But we look the same. So symbolically it all works out. Together, I mean, this is this is a this is a public speech. Ramaphosa didn't come out and contradict it, and I think it came at a time where Ramaposa hadn't had a good business cycle or a nice thing said to him in public for a while. But there you have it. There you've mm. got someone saying, "Hey, billionaire president, well done to you. You are like a, like a flagship. Mm. You're like a star, like a rugby star, a soccer star, someone for people to look up to and live vicariously through mm. because you are so wealthy, they won't have to feel so bad." And I think that's a really a really deep idea in South Africa's political history. I don't think that if former IRR uh, stalwarts, if I dare use that word, like Helen Sussman for example, were to be alive today, I don't think they'd be surprised at all mm. to hear politicians uh, talk like that because mm. it's uh, it's really not an original script, it's just a few different actors playing the roles.
0: Mm. It, it's that It's that living vicariously. I think that I think that's probably is the explanation because it's that living vicariously because then you can you can overcome poverty in a a symbolic sense. Um, So it's a question of vicarious living and symbolism all uh, all mushed into one. And in, in a way, it makes probably more sense than anything else, because our logic, most people's logic would say. You know, this is just ruinous and, and has no benefit whatsoever. But you say that this is not the only thing that you are canvassing on. So do you tell what other oh. racial delights you have for us.
1: Yeah, I'm sorry. It is, <laughs> it is, look, these issues are hard to talk about, but we have to, we have to do this because partly because common sense in South Africa is really, is really, in my experience, prevalent. Around the breakfast table, around the dinner table, whether you're in rural SA or in the urban SA, a township SA, Cassie SA, most people have got it. They understand what the problems are. Uh, it's just we don't we don't talk about it uh, in public so much. So here's here's our camp. Here's our recent campaign. We've been going through load shedding. It's a little bit of respite this week. Some nice promises coming from Dureta and Ramaposa over the weekend about uh, maybe better things to come. But you know, Dureta was frank. You know, maybe we'll get a couple of good weeks. But this problem is not going away unless we get substantial change. Now, one of the things clearly that has to change is there needs to be more private power generation. The ESCOM 2.0 idea of getting a new government, whole separate entity is is a sort of satire of itself. We, we, we clearly need more private generation, but we can't run away from ESCOM. There's no replacing it. There's, there's too much there. You can't sell it all off. Uh, there's just no ways that it work. So you need ESCOM to operate more efficiently. So our campaign is simple. Make it more efficient. Maximize value for money to minimize load shedding. And a very easy way to do that is to cut the red tape, is to cut the BEE procurement requirements that ESCOM is subjected to. Now, this is, yeah, the IRR has always opposed BEE at ESCOM. I remember Gwen and Gwenya, who's become the head of policy at the DA, wrote this wonderful piece titled "ESCOM uh, and BE: A Total Eclipse of the Brain," which pointed out that uh, you know there was a connection directly between the ANC's requirement that you get a BE partner and Hitachi bringing in Chancellor House, which was the ANC's investment arm, as a business partner to go ahead and try and help build two of the world's largest uh, coal-fired power plants both of which ended up not working because of how convoluted the procurement process became which led to load shedding Uh, so a very very clear example there and there are others anyway the campaign is simple we need to cut that stuff out we've got the law on our side uh, in terms of the minister being of finance being allowed to do it and we've got precedent on our side. Earlier this year, we called on Enoch Conanguana, Minister of Finance, to cut the, the red tape. And he did so temporarily. So we want him to do it again, but on a long-term basis. IFM,
0: 101.9 megahertz of life. Um, Gabriel, I hope you're still, uh, still with us. Um, what I wanted to... Put, what I, what, I, what I want to say excuse me what I wanted to put forward is the fact that the the skill there was a comment made by Jan oberholzer the COO of escom in which he said that people working in escom at a technical level are appropriately and uh, well qualified but they are inexperienced yeah. and in, this suggests that it's the inexperience comes from not having been properly trained on the job. And one of the things I think people underestimate is that no amount of academic training, whatever field you're in, makes you suitable for actually carrying out the, the tasks required until you have been trained by somebody who's been in the job for a, for a long period of time. So what we have at ESCOM is is educated but under-trained and therefore not, in, not competent enough people to do the job.
1: It's exactly right. And it's and it's a problem that has been identified from inside cabinet. For example, by uh, Minister Pravin Gordon. He was making he was making exactly this kind of point five, six years ago. He was saying that uh, it's a bad mistake to let go of experienced, frankly white staff at ESCOM. You know, ESCOM used to a long time ago, there was clearly a a, a very terrible, heinous hiring policy as part of the broader apartheid uh, scheme. So there is going to be a, a legacy look problem, but uh, Gordon was saying, let's get practical, you know, you need the skills transfer. And it's exactly as you say, sorry it's a, it's a, it's a, it's a collaborative thing. It means people that are trained that can pass the exams uh, that they've taken at Vits or UCT or whatever it is. Great. They've passed the engineering exams. That doesn't mean you know how to do the job yet. Uh, you need to go and do the job with someone who already knows how to do it uh, so that you can figure out the nitty-gritty. And uh, and people were handed out uh, impractically. Their skills were not sufficiently transferred. And recently, one of the reasons that this campaign right now is very important, and people have been signing up a big time, and we encourage you to please go check it out on irr.org.za you'll see that campaign, you can sign up too, is that we are getting traction. So Praveen Gordon recently um, said we need to cut the red tape, cut the damn red tape, he said, and it, uh, shortly after that, uh, stood there with uh, Andre de Reza as they announced that formally removed, you know, people who'd been removed for what they called legacy racial issues uh, had been brought back into Escob to try and smooth over some of the problems. That kind of practical thinking is exactly the kind of thinking that we are trying to argue for. Over the weekend, Ramaphosa said very clearly that procurement at ESCOM is a problem, that it needs to be efficientized, and that, they, that his task team for the last week has been looking at ways to do this. I mean, the, the, the paint is wet. It's, it's a good time to try and push for something better. As I said, Enoch Gorongwana has already proved that he thinks it's legitimate in the national interest, which is the law says if it's in the national interest, he Mm. can give you a BE exemption. He already effectively did that earlier this year with ESCOM and Transnet and a couple of other SOEs. So we're asking him to do it again. Zondo, the Zondo report, at the beginning of the year, said effectively it's always in the national interest Mm. to maximize value for money in procurement. In part one, there was this beautiful legal analysis. Uh, between r- racial policy and just value for money. And they said, the Zona report said, you can't say that both are the most important. That's just illogical. And when it's illogical, it's confusing. When it's confusing, corrupt people get involved. They take advantage of that confusion and they steal. So as long as you say both are the most important, uh, there's going to be corruption. So you've got to say one's more important than the other. And he said, clearly, we're a poor country. <laughs> you know, you maximizing value for money. Any pinching. Totally comes before color coding. Mm. It's much more important. Merit over melanin. This is this is the way we've got to go. He, uh, the way he put it was that it's in the primary national interest to maximize value for money and all uh, organs of state procurement officers should be so advised. So we want to pass on that advice and make it practical. Save some money. The writer said, uh, we, you know, he was asked directly uh, by someone we know about whether these exemptions would be a good idea. And he said there's a strong case for it. Because as long as you interpose non-value-adding intermediaries, was his phrase, you increase costs, you increase the risk of corruption, and you slow down supply chains. And we can't afford any one of those three things. We need to reduce all three. So, uh, you know, we're hearing good signs from ESCOM. We're hearing uh, cabinet make concessions to pragmatic, serious thinking uh, under pressure. And we want to build that pressure because... This winter, <laughs> we're not done with it, and the next winter's coming, and the winter after that. And even if you, you know, paper over the cracks with one or two thousand megawatt uh, that brought back online, if you really need to improve things dramatically in order to get us into the position where we're growing at 5% GDP year mm-hmm. on year, which is what we need to start eating into the biggest problem in the country, which is mm-hmm. unemployment. It all comes back to the biggest problem in this country and it does disproportionately affect black people. But if you are poor and you are desperate and you are unemployed, that's not a color issue. That is a, that's a desperation issue. It's Mm. a poverty issue. And we need to, we need to tackle that issue. We need to tackle it by penny pinching, by being pragmatic, by being serious about issues, by looking past each other's uh, superficial, you know, how big are your ears? How long is your nose? Who cares? Mm. We need to get into the, the real nitty gritty skills transfer, excellence in 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 cost saving and fast turnaround and we i think we can do it you know ramiposa said it last week in his in his newsletter we shouldn't given all of the infrastructure and skills and whatnot that we have in this country we shouldn't be in this position Mm. well i don't always agree with that guy (laughs) in fact it's not often but he got that right Mm. Uh, you know the reason things are not working is the rules of the game are corrupt Mm. We need to change the rules of the game. We need to liberate South Africa from race law Mm. once and and For all and this is a good thin edge of the wedge It's a it's a concrete issue It's something people can understand something people can get get behind if we win on this We can take it to the next thing and uh, and make South Africa like a truly free country a country where it's easier to get a job And where you don't have where the laws not telling you to judge people by how they look You can just judge them by what they do and their true character
0: well, uh, and to avoid becoming a sort of the, the the north in Game of Thrones, the eternal winter of, uh, mm. of of our discontent. But that's another thing. Gabriel, thank you very much for joining us. And uh, I, I will encourage our listeners to go to ir.org.za and just add your name. That's all you have to do. Uh, adding a name, lots of names, becomes very, very powerful. Thanks thank very you. much, Gabriel. Thank Once you so again.
1: much, Sarah. Have a beautiful day.
0: Thank you.